Section 28 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Theology of the Intellect and That of the Feelings, Article 1, Part 1. Footnote. The Theology of the Intellect and That of the Feelings, a discourse before the Convention of the Congregational Ministers of New England, in Brattle Street Meeting House, Boston, May 30th, 1850, by Edwards A. Park, Professor in Andover Theological Seminary. Princeton Review, October, 1850. End footnote. The normal authority of the scripture is one of the subjects about which, at the present time, the mind of the church is most seriously agitated. The old doctrine of the plenary inspiration and consequent infallibility of the written word is still held by the great body of believers. It is assailed, however, from various quarters and in different ways. Some of these assaults are from avowed enemies, some from pretended friends, and others from those who are sincere in thinking they are doing God's service in making his word more pliant, so that it may accommodate itself the more readily, not to science but to the theories of scientific men, not to philosophy but to the speculations of philosophers. The form of these attacks is constantly varying. The age of naked rationalism is almost over. That system is dying of a want of heart. Its disillusion is being hastened by the contempt even of the world. It is no longer the mode to make common sense the standard of all truth. Since the discovery of the Anschauungsvermögen, men see things in their essence. The institutional consciousness has superseded the discursive understanding. The rationalists have given place to transcendentalists. In the hands of many of the latter, the scriptures share the same fate which has overtaken the outward world. As the material is but the manifestation of the spiritual, so the facts and doctrines of the Bible are the mere forms of the spirit of Christianity, and if you have the spirit, it matters not what form it takes. These gifted ones, therefore, can afford to be very liberal. They see in Christianity, as in all things else, a manifestation of what is real. They pity, but can bear with, those who lay stress on the historical facts and doctrinal assertions of the scriptures. They look on them as occupying a lower position and as belonging to a receding period. Still men can have the substance in that form as well as in another. The misfortune is that they persist in considering the form to be the substance, or at least inseparable from it. They do not see that as the principle of vegetable life is as vigorous now as when it was expressed in forms extant only in fossils, and would continue unimpaired, though the whole existing flora should perish, so Christianity would flourish uninjured, though the New Testament should turn out to be a fable. This theory has more forms than one, and has many advocates who are not prepared to take it in its full results. Neither is it confined to Germany. With most of the productions of that teeming soil, it is in the process of transplanting. Shoots have been set out, and assiduously watered in England and America, which bid fair to live and bear fruit. The doctrine that Christianity consists not in propositions, it is life in the soul, and a life independent of the propositions, of necessity, supersedes the authority, if not the necessity, of the scriptures. This doctrine, variously modified, is one of the forms in which the word of God is made of none effect. 
Another theory intimately related to one just referred to is the doctrine that inspiration differs in degree, but not in nature, from the spiritual illumination which ordinary men enjoy. Just in proportion as the religious consciousness is elevated, the intuition of divine things is enlarged and rendered more distinct. If sanctification were perfect, religious knowledge would be perfect. Let there be a due purification of the moral nature, says Morel, a perfect harmony of the spiritual being with the mind of God, a removal of all inward disturbances from the breast, and what is to prevent or disturb this immediate intuition of divine things. Page 174. Footnote. Morel is a very superior man. He stands among the first rank of reproducing, as distinguished from producing minds. His book is a simple reproduction of the doctrines of the German school to which he is addicted, but it is remarkably clear, well digested, and consistent. He understands himself and his masters. This is a great deal. Still, he is but an intelligent pupil, and those who wish to understand the theory which he presents would do well to study it in the writings of its authors. They will find it there in its nakedness, freed from those delicate concealments which a traditionary faith has imposed on Mr. Morell. End footnote. The inspiration of the sacred writings resembles, he tells us, that of men of genius. The natural philosopher is so in harmony with nature that he has a sort of intuition of her laws. The poet, from sympathy with his fellow men, can unfold the workings of the human breast, and so good men, from congeniality with God, can see the things of God. Of course, the trustworthiness of the sacred writers differs with their goodness. Those of the Old Testament, standing on a much lower level of moral culture than those of the New, are proportionally below them in authority. The weight due to what these writers say depends not only on their relative goodness, but also on the subjects of which they treat. Beyond the sphere of moral and religious truths, they can have no particular authority, because to that sphere the intuitions of the religious consciousness are of necessity confined. The greater part of the Bible, therefore, is not inspired, even in this low sense of the term, and as to the rest it is not the word of God, it is merely the word of good men. It has at best but a human and not a divine authority. Except, indeed, for those who repudiate the distinction between human and divine, which is the case with the real authors of this system. We are, however, speaking of this theory as it is presented by professed theists. It has appeared under three forms, according to the three different views entertained of the Holy Spirit, to whom this inspiration is referred. If by that term is understood the universal efficiency of God, then all men are inspired, who, under the influence of the general providence of God, have their religious consciousness specially elevated, this is the kind of revelation and inspiration which many claim for heathen sages and concede to Christian apostles. But if the Holy Spirit be regarded as the forming, animating, and governing principle of the Christian Church, then inspiration is confined to those within the Church and belongs to all its members in proportion to their susceptibility to this pervading principle. Again, if the Holy Spirit be recognized as a divine person, dispensing his gifts to each one severally as he wills, inspiration may be a still more restricted gift, but its essential nature remains the same. It is that purifying influence of the Spirit upon the mind which enables it to see the things of God. It is simply spiritual illumination granted to all believers, to each according to his measure, 
to the apostles it may be conceded in greater fullness than to any others, but to none perfectly. The Bible is not the word of God, though it contains the aspirations, the convictions, the outgoings of heart of men worthy of all reverence for their piety. The distinction between the scriptures and uncanonical writings of pious men is simply as to the degree of their piety, or their relative advantages of knowledge. It is not our business to discuss this theory of inspiration. We speak of it as one of the modes in which the authority of the Bible is, in the present age, assailed. Under the same general category must be classed the beautiful solo of Dr. Bushnell. He endeavoured to seduce us from cleaving to the letter of the scriptures by telling us the Bible was but a picture or a poem, that we need as little to know its dogmas as the pigments of an artist. The aesthetic impression was the end designed, which was to be reached, not through the logical understanding but the imagination. It was not a creed men needed, or about which they should contend. All creeds are ultimately alike. It is of no use, however, to score the notes of a dying swan, as the strain cannot be repeated except by another swan in Articulo Mortis. Dr. Bushnell has had his predecessors. A friend of ours, when in Germany, had Schleiermacher's Reden über die Religion put into his hands. When asked what he thought of those celebrated discourses, he modestly confessed he could not understand them. Understand them, said his friend, that is not the point. Did you not feel them? We are sincerely sorry to be obliged to speak of Professor Park's sermon, which was listened to with unbounded admiration, and the fame of which has gone through the land. Footnote. While writing, we have received a copy of the third thousand of this discourse. End footnote. As inimical to the proper authority of the word of God. But, if it is right in him to publish such an attack on doctrines long held sacred, it must be right in those who believe those doctrines to raise their protest against it. We are far from supposing that the author regards his theory as subversive of the authority of the Bible. He has obviously adopted it as a convenient way of getting rid of certain doctrines which stand out far too prominently in the scripture and are too deeply impressed on the hearts of God's people to allow of their being denied. It must be conceded that they are in the Bible. To reconcile this concession with their rejection, he proposes the distinction between the theology of feeling and that of the intellect. There are two modes of apprehending and presenting truth. The one by the logical consciousness, to use the convenient nomenclature of the day, that it may be understood. The other by the intuitional consciousness, that it may be felt. These modes do not necessarily agree, they may often conflict, so that what is true in the one may be false in the other. If an assertion of scripture commends itself to our reason, we refer it to the theology of the intellect and admit its truth. If it clashes with any of our preconceived opinions, we can refer it to the theology of the feelings and deny its truth for the intellect. In this way, it is obvious any unpalatable doctrine may be got rid of, but no less obviously at the expense of the authority of the word of God. There is another advantage of this theory of which the professor probably did not think. It enables a man to profess his faith in doctrines which he does not believe. Dr. Bushnell could sign any creed by help of that chemistry of thought which makes all creeds alike. Professor Park's theory will allow a man to assert contradictory propositions. If asked, do you believe that Christ satisfied the justice of God, he can say, yes, for it is true to his feelings, and he can say, no, because it is false to his intellect. 
a judicious use of this method will carry a man a great way. This whole discourse, we think, will strike the reader as a set of variations on the old theme, what is true in religion is false in philosophy, and the tearful German, of whom our author speaks, who said, in my heart I am a Christian, while in my head I am a philosopher, might find great comfort in the doctrine here propounded. He might learn that his condition, instead of a morbid, was in fact the normal one, as what is true to the feelings is often false to the intellect. We propose to give a brief analysis of this sermon, and then, in as few words as possible, endeavour to estimate its character. The sermon is founded upon Genesis 6.6 and 1 Samuel 15.29. In the former passage, it is said, It repented the Lord, and in the latter, God is not a man that he should repent. Here are two assertions in direct conflict, God repented and God cannot repent. Both must be true. But how are they to be reconciled? The sermon proposes to give the answer and to show how the same proposition may be both affirmed and denied. Our author begins by telling us of a father who, in teaching astronomy to his child, produced a false impression by presenting the truth, while the mother produced a correct impression by teaching error. This, if it means anything to the purpose, is rather ominous as a commencement. A right impression is the end to be aimed at in all instruction, and if the principle implied in this illustration be correct, we must discard the fundamental maxim in religion, truth is in order to holiness, and assume that error is better adapted to that purpose, a principle on which Romanists have for ages acted in their crass misrepresentations of divine things in order to impress the minds of the people. But we must proceed with our analysis. Quote, the theology of the intellect, we are told, conforms to the laws, subserves the wants, and secures the approval of our intuitive and deductive powers. It includes the decisions of the judgment, of the perceptive part of conscience and taste, indeed of all the faculties which are essential to the reasoning process. It is the theology of speculation, and therefore comprehends the truth just as it is, unmodified by excitements of feeling. It is received as accurate, not in its spirit only, but in its letter also. End quote. Page 534. It demands evidence. It prefers general to individual statements, the abstract to the concrete, the literal to the figurative. Its aim is not to be impressive, but intelligible and defensible. For example, it affirms that he who united in his person a human body, a human soul, and a divine spirit expired on the cross, but it does not originate the phrase that the soul expired, nor that God the mighty maker died. Quote, it would never suggest the unqualified remark, that Christ has fully paid the debt of sinners, for it declares that this debt may be justly claimed from them, nor that he suffered the whole punishment which they deserve, for it teaches that this punishment may still be righteously inflicted on themselves, nor that he has entirely satisfied the law, for it insists that the demands of the law are yet in force. End quote. It gives origin to, quote, no metaphor so bold and so liable to disfigure our idea of the divine equity as that heaven imputes the crime of one man to millions of his descendants, and then imputes their myriad sins to him who was harmless and undefiled. It is suited not for eloquent appeals, but for calm, controversial treatises and bodies of divinity, not so well for the hymn-book as for the catechism, not so well for the liturgy as for the creed. 
End quote. Page 535. We must pause here for a moment. It so happens that all the illustrations which our author gives of modes of expression which the theology of the intellect would not adopt are the products of that theology. They are the language of speculation, of theory of the intellect, as distinguished from the feelings, that Christ bore our punishment, that he satisfied the law that Adam's sin is imputed to us and our sins to Christ, are all generalizations of the intellect. They are summations of the manifold and diversified representations of Scripture. They are abstract propositions embodying the truth presented in the figures, facts, and didactic assertions found in the sacred writing. It would be impossible to pick out of the whole range of theological statements any which are less impassioned, or which are more purely addressed to the intellect. They have been framed for the very purpose of being intelligible and defensible. They answer every criterion the author himself proposes for distinguishing the language of the intellect from that of the feeling. Accordingly, these are the precise representations given in catechisms, in calm, controversial treatises and bodies of divinity for strictly didactic purposes. They are found in the accurately worded and carefully balanced confessions of faith designed to state with all possible precision the intellectual propositions to be received as true. These are the very representations, moreover, which have been held up to reproach as theoretical, as philosophy introduced into the Bible. Whether they are correct or incorrect is not now the question. What we assert is that if there be any such thing as the theology of the intellect, any propositions framed for the purpose of satisfying the demands of the intelligence, any purely abstract and didactic formulae, these are they. Yet Professor Park, simply because he does not recognize them as true, puts them under the category of feeling and represents them as passionate expressions designed not to be intelligible but impressive, addressed not to the intellect but to the emotions. The theology of the feelings is declared to be the form of belief which is suggested by and adapted to the wants of the well-trained heart. It is embraced as involving the substance of the truth, although, when literally interpreted, it may or may not be false. It studies not the exact proportions of doctrine, but gives special prominence to those features which are thought to be most grateful to the sensibilities. It insists not on dialectical argument, but receives whatever the healthy affections crave. Page 535. It sacrifices abstract remarks to visible and tangible images, it is satisfied with vague, indefinite representations, page 536. For example, instead of saying God can do all things which are the objects of power, he says, he spake and it was done. Instead of saying that the providence of God comprehends all events, it says, the children of men put their trust under the cover of Jehovah's wings. To keep back the Jews from the vices and idolatry of their neighbours, it plied them with a stern theology, which represented God as jealous and angry, and armed with bow, arrows, and glittering sword. But when they needed a soothing influence, they were told that the Lord feedeth his flock like a shepherd. It represents Christians as united to their Lord as the branch to the vine, or the members to the head, but it does not mean to have these endearing words metamorphosed into an intellectual theory of our oneness with Christ, for without another end in view it teaches that he is distinct from us as a captain from his soldiers. The free theology of the feelings is ill-fitted for didactic or controversial treatises or doctrinal standards. 
Anything, everything, can be proved from the writings of those addicted to its use, because they indict sentences congenial with an excited heart, but false as expressions of deliberate opinion. Page 537. This is the theology of and for our sensitive nature, of and for the normal emotion, affection, passion. It is, moreover, permanent. Ancient philosophy has perished. Ancient poetry is as fresh as ever. So the theology of reason changes. Theory chases theory. Quote, but the theology of the heart, letting the minor inaccuracies go for the sake of holding strongly upon the substance of doctrine, need not always accommodate itself to scientific changes, but may often use its old statements, even if, when literally understood, they be incorrect. Footnote. This is a rather dangerous principle. Röhr, superintendent of Weimar, though a pure deist, admitting nothing but the doctrines of natural religion, still insisted on the propriety of retaining the language and current representations of orthodox Christians, and telling the people in his public ministrations that Christ was the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world, that men are saved by his blood. He did not think it necessary that the language designed to move the people should accommodate itself to scientific changes, even when, if literally understood, i.e., if understood according to its true import, it was incorrect. It is easy to see what latitude in saying one thing and meaning another this principle will allow. End footnote. And it thus abides permanent, as are the main impressions of the truth. End quote. Page 539. We must again pause in our analysis. If there be any such thing as the theology of the feelings as distinct from that of the intellect, the passages cited above neither prove nor illustrate it. Our author represents the feelings as expressing themselves in figures and demanding visible and tangible images. We question the correctness of this statement. The highest language of emotion is generally simple. Nothing satisfies the mind when under great excitement, but literal or perfectly intelligible expressions. Then is not the time for rhetorical phrases. There is a lower state of feeling, a placid calmness, which delights in poetic imagery, which at once satisfies the feelings and excites the imagination, and thus becomes the vehicle of moral and aesthetic emotions combined. The emotions of terror and sublimity also, as they are commonly excited through the imagination, naturally clothe themselves in imaginative language. But the moral, religious, and social affections, when strongly moved, commonly demand the simplest form of utterance. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is the language of seraphic devotion, yet what more simple? The loving-kindness of the Lord is over all his works, is surely as much the language of feeling, and tends as directly to excite gratitude and confidence, as saying, The Lord is my shepherd. The most pathetic lamentation upon record is that of David over his son Absalom, which is indeed an apostrophe, but nothing can be freer from tropical expression. How simple also is the language of penitence, as recorded in the Bible. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Behold, I am vile, what shall I answer thee? O my God, I am ashamed, and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. Admitting, however, that figurative language is the usual vehicle of emotion, this affords no foundation for the distinction between the theology of feeling and the theology of the intellect, the one vague and inaccurate, the other precise and exact. 
for, in the first place, figurative language is just as definite in its meaning and just as intelligible as the most literal. After the Church had been struggling for centuries to find language sufficiently precise to express distinctly its consciousness respecting the person of Christ, it adopted the figurative language of the Athanasian Creed, God of God, light of light, begotten and not made. Calling God our shepherd presents as definite an idea to the mind as the most literal form of expression. To say that God is angry or jealous expresses as clearly the truth that his nature is opposed to sin as the most abstract terms could do. We have here no evidence of two kinds of theology, the one affirming what the other denies, the one true to the feelings and false to the intellect, and the reverse. The two passages on which this sermon is founded, chosen for the purpose of illustrating this theory, might be selected to show that it is without foundation. The declarations God repented and God cannot repent do not belong to different categories. The one is not the language of feeling and the other of the intelligence. The one does not affirm what the other denies. Both are figurative. Both are intelligible. The one, in its connection, expresses God's disapprobation of sin, the other his immutability. The one addresses the sensibilities as much as the other, and the one is as much directed to the intellect as the other. To found two conflicting kinds of theology on such passages as these is as unreasonable as it would be to build two systems of anthropology on the verbally contradictory propositions constantly used about men. We say a man is a lion, and we say he is not a quadruped. Do these assertions require a new theory of psychology, or even a new theory of interpretation in order to bring them into harmony? Figurative language, when interpreted literally, will, of course, express what is false to the intellect, but it will, in that case, be no less false to the taste and to the feelings. Such language, when interpreted according to the established usage, and made to mean what it was intended to express, is not only definite in its import, but it never expresses what is false to the intellect. The feelings demand truth in their object, and no utterance is natural or effective as the language of emotion which does not satisfy the understanding. Saying God repents, that he is jealous, that he is our shepherd, that men hide under the shadow of his wings, are true to the intelligence in the precise sense in which they are true to the feelings, and it is only so far as they are true to the former that they are effective or appropriate to the latter. It is because calling God our shepherd presents the idea of a person exercising a kind care over us, that it has the power to move the affections. If it presented any conception inconsistent with the truth, it would grate on the feelings, as much as it would offend the intellect. We object, therefore, to our author's exposition of this doctrine, first because much that he cites as the language of feeling is incorrectly cited, and secondly because granting his premises, his conclusion does not follow. A third objection is that he is perfectly arbitrary in the application of his theory. Because figurative language is not to be interpreted literally, the Sicinian infers that all that is said in Scripture in reference to the sacrificial nature of Christ's death is to be understood as expressing nothing more than the truth that he died for the benefit of others. When the patriot dies for his country, or a mother wears herself out in the service of her child, we are wont to say they sacrifice themselves for the object of their affection. This deceives no one. It expresses the simple truth that they died for the good of others. Whether this is all that the scriptures mean when they call Christ a sacrifice is not to be determined by settling the general principle that figures are not to be interpreted according to the letter. 
that is conceded. But figures have a meaning which is not to be explained away at pleasure. Professor Park would object to this exposition of the design of Christ's death, not by insisting that figurative language is to be interpreted literally, but by showing that these figures are designed to teach more than the Sicinian is willing to admit. In like manner we say that, if we were disposed to admit the distinction between the theology of the feelings and that of the intellect, as equivalent to that between figurative and literal language, or, as our author says, between poetry and prose, we should still object to his application of his principle. He is just as arbitrary in explaining away the scriptural representations of original sin, of the satisfaction of divine justice by the sacrifice of Christ, as the Sicinian is in the application of his principle. He just as obviously violates the established laws of language, and just as plainly substitutes the speculations of his own mind for the teachings of the word of God. Entirely irrespective, therefore, of the validity of our author's theory, we object to this sermon that it discards, as the language of emotion, historical, didactic, argumentative statements, that it discards, as the language of emotion, historical, didactic, argumentative statements, and in short, everything he is not willing to receive, as far as appears, for no other reason and by no other rule than his own repugnance to what is thus presented. End of section 28